0: Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, human flourishing and public health.
1: Flourishing is a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good.
0: In this week's episode, we explore what it means for people to flourish, how we can measure it, and ways to help people reach that state where all aspects of their life are good. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health, I'm Noah Levitt. In this week's episode, we're talking about flourishing. Now flourishing is more than just being happy, although that's a part of it. But the idea of flourishing expands beyond happiness to look at a person's overall well-being, taking into account things like life satisfaction or someone's sense of purpose. That's why studying flourishing is an interdisciplinary science drawing on public health, philosophy, psychology, and more. And in this week's episode, we're talking to two Harvard researchers who are tackling big questions about flourishing. What does it mean for people to flourish? How do we measure it? And are there things that make people more or less likely to flourish? Those are just some of the questions being asked and answered by Harvard's Human Flourishing Program. And I recently had the chance to sit down with two of the program's leaders. Tyler Vanderweel is the program director and John L. Loeb and Francis Lehman Loeb, professor of epidemiology in the departments of epidemiology and biostatistics here at the Harvard Chan School. And Matthew Wilson is the associate director and a research associate at Harvard's Institute for Quantitative Social Sciences, where the Human Flourishing Program is housed. Together with other researchers, they've created a system for measuring flourishing by focusing on five areas. Happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose character and virtue and close social relationships if you want to learn more about the work of the human flourishing program we'll have much more information on our website just go to hsph.me multimedia and look for this episode but now let's jump into my interview with tyler vanderweel and matthew wilson tyler you're an epidemiologist biostatistician matt your background is in philosophy so how did you two originally connect and, and start working together
1: So the human flourishing program at Harvard was founded about three years ago, and the idea was to try to bring together different disciplines on this topic of human flourishing, including empirical work from public health and medicine and and the social sciences, uh, but also work in philosophy and and theology. And um, as we continued with this work, um, it became clear that we, we needed uh, greater input from from philosophers on, on human flourishing. In addition, as we grew, um, the need for uh, an associate director became clear, and uh, Matt Wilson came along, who had a background both in business administration and a PhD in philosophy, so it really was a perfect match.
2: Yeah, I, I uh, got very interested in, in the program when uh, one of my colleagues, Jeff Hansen, reached out to me. and. Uh, told me about the program and all the, the work it was doing. Uh, my own background um, is in philosophy, specifically in character and virtue, which is one of the pillars of our, our research program. And so um, that really got me interested. And, uh, of course, uh, having met the team, um, we've got a great team assembled. So I was really excited to come on board.
0: And so, so what is flourishing um, when we think about it um, in terms of the work you're doing? What, what does flourishing encompass?
1: So the working definition we've been using at the Human Flourishing Program is that flourishing is a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good. And so it's a pretty broad, all-encompassing definition, and it can be challenging uh, to, to operationalize that, to, to, to study it, um, and moreover, the notion of flourishing and what that consists of is likely to differ across um, different cultural and, and religious and philosophical traditions. And so the approach we've been taking is to focus on what seems common um, to all of these different understandings of Flourishing, And the, the argument we would make is that um, wh- whatever else flourishing might consist of, it would also include the following five domains of human life as well. First, happiness and life satisfaction. Second, mental and physical health. Third, meaning and purpose. Fourth, character and virtue. And fifth, close social relationships. The argument's not that that's what exhausts flourishing, but that whatever else a conception of flourishing might include, it would include these five domains as well. And so that's principally what we've been studying.
0: And so how did you so how did you kind of arrive at those as as you know as you said that doesn't mean it's everything, but maybe those are kind of most representative of what it means, you know, where all elements of your life are good. So how did how did you arrive at those those pillars?
1: Yeah, so I would argue that each of those five pillars is is first nearly universally desirable. Um, pretty much everyone wants to be happy and healthy, to be a good person, to have a sense of purpose, to have good relationships. So it's nearly universally de- desired. And also each of those domains constitutes their own end. They're sought not just for the sake of something else, but they're sought for their own sake. And I think those two criteria, uh, being universally desired and um, being sought as its own end can help shape consensus on, on, uh, on, on what uh, to measure. Again, I think any given um, religious or, or philosophical tradition will, will likely have other um, important aspects of flourishing, like uh, spiritual well being, for, for example. Um, but I, I think nearly every tradition, if we, and every time period, if we look across time and space, these things are, are, are sought. And so that was really what motivated the selection of those five.
0: So I know your, your colleague, another researcher here at the School of Vish- Vishwistranath, co- commonly says, you know, health is more than just the absence of disease. This idea that, you know, health is uh, this mental, they're, 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 there's other aspects there. So how does this idea of kind of flourishing and these pillars kind of fit into public health in general?
1: So the World Health Organization's definition of health is that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And um, that definition is still in place today. And so it's a fairly broad uh, conception of, of health, but I think an important one, and I, I think one uh, which corresponds more accurately to, to how people think about uh, their, their own lives. And so while I think it is the case that this is what people are, are seeking, often our studies uh, within public health are, are more narrowly focused on specific disease states. And it's important to, to understand uh, those and the advances that have been made in this regard are, are tremendous. But I think the powerful tools and methodologies that have developed out of public health can be used to study these other outcomes that people care about um, as well. I sometimes find it remarkable that we know so much more, for example, about the determinants of cardiovascular disease than we do about the determinants of what gives rise to a sense of purpose in life, despite that being a desired end for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do uh, at the Human Flourishing Program is to take the same sorts of methodologies that have been successful in studying physical health and apply it to these other outcomes as well. So we might distinguish between on the one hand the the health or wholeness of the body um, and the health or wholeness of the person Mm -hmm. Um, and I think once we focus on the wholeness of the person we, we we end up not just with physical health but also with things like happiness like good relationships like trying to be a good a person, like having a sense of of purpose. So, mm-hmm. we still would view this as as part of um, the mission of, of of the school of of public health and the study of health, but really the health of the person and not just of the body.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like almost kind of a broadening of what public health is and can be.
1: That that is the goal. I mean, our our hope is that uh, others would would join us in in this sort of work and endeavor and in health and in in public health and in medicine Um, and uh that when it comes to decision making and prioritization of resources um that that these other outcomes would be considered as well Mm -hmm. Um, i think sometimes for example years of uh, disease-free survival might be in conflict with uh loss of purpose or or difficulties with relationships when, when certain surgical procedures, say, can have pretty negative side effects. Mm-hmm. And these things really should be weighed in medicine and within our work uh, in public health. So I do think um, it is important to, to broaden our conception of what health is in this regard. I think there's a lot of interest in, in doing this, and we do hope others will join us.
2: You know, Tyler, that's really interesting. And you said... Um, Noah, about broadening uh, the conception of public health one thing that occurs to me that's really interesting about um, that concept is the broadening needs to include more disciplines uh, Mm -hmm. which is one of the aims of our program is to bring sort of these uh, traditional disciplines from the humanities philosophy and theology together with uh, health sciences and the social sciences when you're purely studying cardiovascular disease There's not much that I or any other philosopher is going to have much to say about that. Um, But when you start talking about things like meaning and purpose or character and virtue, Mm -hmm. and then going out and trying to measure that, that's really where the dialogue between the social sciences and the humanities uh, starts to come together.
0: So I do want to talk about the measurement in a moment. But just to follow up on that, I mean, I think that's an interesting point about kind of bringing different disciplines together. So what strengths do you feel like? You know, the people at the Human Flourishing Program who are the philosophers who have the background in the humanities, what, what kind of strengths do you bring that maybe um, someone from public health maybe doesn't have? How, do you, how, do, how does that balance work?
2: Yeah, so, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's um, a rich history of uh, thought, you know, dating all the way back to Aristotle, that, uh, who was probably one of the first thinkers, him and Plato, uh, to think about what it means to flourish as a human being. And um, I think some, some of the strength is just um, dr- being able to draw on those historical resources and concept- conceptual distinctions that have already been made throughout the, the history of Western thought. Uh, but then there's also uh, a disciplinary sort of uh, rigor, I think, to philosophy and, and theology uh, to really, I mean, we really wanna make these conceptual distinctions right. Mm-hmm. And so, when we're thinking about something like meaning of purpose, meaning and purpose, excuse me, uh, meaning of life versus meaning in life, um, what, what do these things really mean? How do we tease these out uh, when we actually then sit down to write particular question items that might try to assess those? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think the question of, Meaning and purpose is an interesting one in, in this regard, and there have been an increasing number of empirical studies within public health suggesting that having a sense of purpose in life uh, leads to a, a longer life. Your uh, Chances of, of, of dying over a 10-year period, if you have a high sense and purpose, are reduced about 20%. But we have these questions, well, what is purpose? And how do we measure it? And um, is it distinct from meaning? And and there, I think the measures we've typically been using in public health are actually somewhat muddled. Mm-hmm. And so one of the projects that we've taken on at the Human Flourishing Program is to develop a better measure of meaning and purpose, distinguishing between um, purpose on the one hand, which is more end-directed, and meaning, on uh, the other which is having a sense of the relation of things and as matt had indicated there are further distinctions that can be drawn between what's sometimes called uh, coherence or having a sense of the meaning of life how uh,
2: what
1: what are the answer to life's big questions with regard to uh, the origin of everything or where where it's all heading versus um, what's sometimes called significance or meaning in uh, life how do I find and evaluate my, my uh, activities? What do I find valuable um, in, in my day-to-day life? And um, we think these are actually going to be quite uh, differently associated with, uh, with physical health outcomes, but also perhaps have different uh, determinants. And we need that uh, precision and that conceptual rigor that the philosophers bring uh, to establish good measures, and I think ultimately to uh, study this well within public health.
0: And so you, you both touched on measurement there. So h- how do you go about measure, measuring flourishing? Because I'm guessing for a lot of listeners, they probably are sitting here thinking, okay, th- this sounds a little bit abstract. How do I get my head around this? So, so how do you measure flourishing? How do you measure those different pillars?
1: So what we've done is we have formed a, a brief 12-item questionnaire uh, to try to very crudely assess flourishing. Acknowledging that, in, in fact, um, flourishing as a concept is much broader, but if you're, if you're going to measure something, um, you, you need specific questions. And so we have two questions in um, each of the five domains I had mentioned earlier, as well as two additional questions on financial and material stability, which we think are important means to sustain these other aspects of flourishing over time. Um, so for example, in the happiness and life satisfaction domain, we use a qu- question Overall, how satisfied are you with life as a whole these days? Zero, um, not at all satisfied. Ten, completely satisfied. And the participants uh, respond as, as they see their life at present. Um, that question is in fact used quite extensively by uh, the UK's national survey, by the OECD. A variant is u- of that is used by the, the Gallup poll. And so we're, we're using that. Uh, as well. And what we've tried to do in each of these domains is to select questions which are regularly used in the well-being literature to allow for comparison. What's unique about our approach is trying to do the data collection, not just on happiness and not just on self-rated physical health, but across these other uh, domains as well. But we've tried to build upon the existing well-being literature in each of these areas.
0: Mm -hmm. So it it seems like by doing that, you're getting Kind of a more complete picture than you would just if you were asking questions about happiness or virtue or things like that. So you're you're, you're getting a more complete picture then.
1: That's right, and we'll be able to study whether um, certain medical interventions uh, might affect one of the domains positively and and, and not the other. We'll also be mm-hmm. able to study what the determinants are of um, flourishing across these different domains. And you know, I think our Approach is gaining some traction. The Journal of the American Medical Association actually just recently published a, a two-page piece explaining our measure and exploring uh, its potential use for clinical purposes. Uh, the Nurses' Health Study 3, a large cohort study here being run out of Harvard, is going to start collecting this data in uh, 2020. So hmm. once again, we'll be able to understand what the determinants of flourishing are and I think it's relevant from a public health perspective Um, often we think of the public health impact of an exposure as a function of two things on the one hand how common is it and on the other how large are its effects something that's very common and has large effects is going to shape population health and we think of physical health that way we're led to determinants such as exercise good sleep uh, good, good nutrition not smoking and these things do powerfully shape physical health. But when we use the same lens across these different flourishing domains and ask what is common and also has positive effects, not just on physical health, but also on happiness, on purpose, on character, (laughs) And on relationships, we're led to a somewhat different list. And in our research and, and literature reviews, I would I would suggest four major pathways based on this public health impact lens uh, that seem to be common and have large effects on these outcomes. And those those pathways are family, education, work, and religious community. Mm-hmm. There's pretty substantial empirical evidence that each of these is um, common in. U.S. population and globally, um, and also have profound effects on each of those flourishing outcomes. So I think it it changes what we might want to focus our our policies on, on promoting. The promotion of these pathways would lead to greater flourishing.
0: And is it the case that with these pathways, that in addition to promoting flourishing, that there can be aspects in family, for example, that might hinder flourishing? So what do we know about that in terms of not just the promotion of flourishing, but also things that might Hinder someone's ability to flourish.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, each of these uh, pathways that I mentioned are are obviously uh, complex, and um, there are things that can be done to, to to enhance flourishing through through each of them. We we've um, begun studies, for example, of um, parenting practices uh, within the family context, uh, and. Those practices are sometimes divided across two axes, one of which concerns uh, parental warmth or love, and the second of which concerns uh, discipline or control. And perhaps unsurprisingly, what we find is that those children and families with high um, uh, warmth and love, but also high discipline, uh, do do particularly well. Uh, The next best group, which is interesting, is those with high warmth or love but low discipline. And they do considerably better than those with uh, high discipline and, and, and low warmth. So we, mm-hmm. we begin to get insight into what sorts of parenting practices are beneficial or are um, problematic. Um, likewise, with, uh, with, with the formation of a family and with, with marriage comes the, the possibility of, of divorce. And um, research uh, very clearly indicates that, um, at least on, on average, divorce leads to uh, lower levels of well-being. Um, for uh, those, those who have separated, and also for, for children. But I think that itself presents a set of opportunities with regard to can uh, resources be c- created that can um, help prevent marriage from uh, running into these problematic patterns before they mm-hmm. get so bad that the only solution seems to be uh, divorce. So there's some really interesting um, evidence-based empirical work on online marital support programs mm. and and counseling, which you know from the initial data actually look a lot uh, better and more effective than a lot of what's taking place today. So I do think um, within each of those pathways and domains, there's a lot of uh, room and opportunity mm. for further study.
0: So is is one of I mean is one of the things that you're, you're doing essentially is would be to look at. An existing in for intervention, for example, online marital support, and then saying, "Okay, does does this make a difference in flourishing?" So, is is that maybe part of the approach to see other things that we're already doing that can that can make a difference here versus you know the need to develop a new intervention from scratch?
1: Yes, so um, some of what we're doing is evaluating what our existing interventions and looking at their effects not just on physical health but across the, the flourishing um, domains. So um, we're doing this, for example, um, with a uh, set of interventions through the um, Mind Body Institute at, at Harvard, and they have a uh, multi-component program which they call the SMART um, program um, intended to help people with uh, with resilience and they've been looking at the effects on mental health but now we'll also be looking at um, at happiness, at uh, relationships, at, at, at character, at having a sense of purpose. Uh, likewise we're partnering with a surgeon at, at UCLA to um, look at how different surgery options play out, not just on years of disease-free survival, but on the flourishing domains. But in addition to that, we're also looking at perhaps more unusual types of uh, interventions and how this can promote flourishing across the uh, five domains I had previously described. So we'll be beginning uh, next year in 2020, a uh, randomized trial of a forgiveness intervention, a workbook Mm -hmm. that can be done on one's own that helps people who want to forgive but are having trouble doing so uh, to to achieve forgiveness. And this workbook is based on 30 years of work in clinical uh, psychology. We'll be testing it in randomized trials in six countries throughout the world, uh, Colombia, South Africa, Ghana, Ukraine, China, and Indonesia. Um, to look at the effects on forgiveness and on depression, but also on on all of the flourishing domains. And we'll be doing something similar, actually, with a workplace intervention, intending to focus the mind on the particular tasks at hand for at least uh, one intensive hour a day and seeing if this, uh, too, uh, promotes these different aspects of of flourishing. So we're both trying to evaluate existing interventions Mm -hmm. and their effects on flourishing, but also uh, develop perhaps newer and somewhat different interventions intended to target these different domains Mm -hmm.
2: and one of the nice things about having a more holistic model is that when we are looking at a particular intervention and say it didn't necessarily increase life expectancy Mm -hmm. or reduce depression which would be two you know common outcomes that uh, public health would be interested in Maybe it, it delivers a greater sense of meaning and purpose, or uh, closer social relationships, and even if there's not statistically significant, you know, moving of the needle in those other things, if it is providing that, um, then that is a, a contribution towards flourishing, which is um, may have been overlooked otherwise. Tyler, you,
0: you you touched on this a moment ago about um, you know pro, what you know policies, for example, that promote flourishing. Um, I'd be interested to know, based on the work you, you both have done so far, what, what can be done to promote flourishing at that societal broad level, but also the individual level? I mean, for example, that study on parental warmth on marriage counseling. So so how, how do we address flourishing from the large population scale right down to, you know, in people's homes, for example, and, and their personal relationships?
1: Yeah, so starting at the individual level, I think there's a lot individuals' can do in their daily practices that promote flourishing, much of which is now supported by rigorous empirical study. So one example of this is uh, the practice of gratitude. And randomized trials, again, have shown that if you, for example, three times a week write down three things that you're grateful for and and why you're grateful for them and do this for six weeks, then even six months later, these people experience lower depression, higher levels of happiness, uh, better sleep. and uh, another example of this is, is what's sometimes called a, a, an act of kindness activity or, or, or intervention where once a week um, you choose a day and you try to do five acts of kindness that you wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and, um, and, and sure enough, again, if you do this for, for, for six weeks or for 10 weeks, then half a year later, once again, higher levels of, of happiness, less, less depression um, as well, in addition to the good you've done to, to all those <laughs> people you've interacted with, um, of, of course. And the, the positive psychology literature has proposed um, a number of uh, such interventions. Then, you know, I think on the institutional level, an individual can choose to engage with those um, Meaningful communities that that often shape other aspects of flourishing. So while these positive psychology activities can be helpful in altering happiness and health, I don't think they do as much for um, one sense of purpose in life, or mm. uh, for character, or building relationships. I think for those we really do need the community involvement, and I, th- I really do think that's where family and education and work and religious communities can um, can come into play. And then at the societal level, I think it's worthwhile thinking about policies not just through an economic lens, but through a lens of flourishing. If we take welfare policies, for example, while I think a lot of the economically-based welfare policies are well-intentioned and accomplish some good, they're they're often oriented towards trying to uh, promote someone's financial stability and uh, access to healthcare. And I think that's great, I think that's very important. Um, But ones that disincentivize work I think are are problematic because although economic and health needs may be met, work does more than just that. It also Mm -hmm. provides a sense of purpose. It establishes uh, important relationships. So I I think it's important to shape welfare policies Mm -hmm. um, to allow for these other uh, beneficial aspects of of, of work. So I I think there too, that lens of flourishing can be quite helpful.
0: Mm
2: Yeah, you asked about what people can do on the individual level. Uh, one interesting study that we had, which came out uh, last September, was uh, following a cohort of 5,000 children uh, who had a, what we call a religious upbringing, which meant they either engaged in regular religious service attendance or regular prayer and meditation practices. There was The study followed those children for eight years into early adulthood. And uh, what we found was not only a um, reduced risk of the big three of adolescents, which are uh, um, depression, substance abuse, and risky behaviors. Uh, but it also led to these really cool flourishing outcomes, like um, these children were 47% por- more likely to have a sense of mission and purpose, or they were 38% uh, more likely to volunteer in their communities. And um, so, you know, we live in a very pluralistic society, uh, but for those who are involved with some sort of faith community. Uh, one thing that you can do to impure, improve individual flourishing is to stay committed to that community mm-hmm. and to regularly att- regularly attend uh, religious services.
0: It's interesting to, to hear you talk about that. Um, I know you've done, Tyler, some some other previous research on kind of the benefits of religion and spirituality. And so, how do we square kind of that that the clear benefit of community and social groups with I think a world that's kind of increasingly digital and social media focused and self-centered, so kind of how do do we square the benefits of community in a world that's very digital and a lot is being pushed online?
1: My own view, and I do realize that perspectives are going to to differ on this, is that we we need to be careful with technologies, um, that they've um, delivered tremendous benefits but that they've also, especially I think in more recent years, pulled us away from those relationships, pulled us away from um, community. And I think the evidence is mounting that in many cases, they've done so in not very healthy ways. Sort of good studies in the epidemiologic literature now, not done by us, but by others, uh, suggesting that over the long run, the amount of time people are spending on Facebook um, is not contributing uh, to their well-being. I think we've also seen pretty substantial rises, especially amongst young people, in, in depression and, and anxiety. And I, I think a lot of that is that constant interaction um, with social media and technology uh, rather than having time with people face to face. People are willing to say things uh, on online platforms that they would never say uh, in person. And as we spend more and more time in um, those sorts of, of settings, I, I think it can be problematic. So I think technology has a lot of wonderful and important um, uses, uh, but I, th- I think we need to make a real commitment to community life, and that can be difficult. It often is uh, more demanding, and at times can uh, be challenging and, and, and unpleasant, but in the long run, that's how deep relationships are um, formed. So I, I think we need to to balance the benefits of, of technology with a with a care and a, and a caution. And I, my own view is that community commitments, whether that's a religious community or volunteering or at the workplace or in the classroom, is really important um, for, for full flourishing.
0: I know another one of your recent papers highlighted the importance of physicians focusing on flourishing. Why is that important, and what would that look like in practice?
1: I don't think... Um, flourishing necessarily has a place in every single uh, clinical encounter. I would not make uh, that claim. But uh, um, I think in, in certain contexts, it, it can be very helpful and very important. Um, an example I gave earlier was um, surgery d- decisions um, uh, with, with uh, tongue cancer, for, for example. Um, years of disease-free survival uh, may, may improve with uh, with surgery, but the, the side effects are are, are pretty um, can be pretty awful. And um, so how do we how do we balance uh, those? Um, I think another place within medicine where this can be very important. These, this conception of flourishing might be uh, psychiatric care, mm. uh, where certainly addressing questions of mental illness, um, then itself can lead to um, uh, better relationships and sense of meaning. Um, but, but I think it's also the case that sometimes the difficult relationships or the lack of meaning or, or, or struggles with character are themselves the causes of um, mental illness. And so I think there also um, it, can be, it can be quite important. And I think another place within medicine where this concept of flourishing might be very valuable is in thinking about physician burnout. Uh, Physician burnout rates are high. They've been increasing. uh, Suicide rates amongst physicians are now higher than the the general public. Over half physicians now say if they had it to do over, they would not have entered medicine, mm. which, is, which is quite shocking given the amount of good they do, um, given the uh, high respect and esteem and salaries that are on offer. Um, the fact that half would no longer um, re-engage and make the same decisions is, is, is remarkable and I think is pointing to uh, the problems with physician burnout. And so I think thinking about how do we get not just patients, but physicians to flourish? What changes uh, would be needed in the in the patterns and structure of, of their work? Can um, large medical centers pay more attention to physician um, well-being? What is the role of technology and uh, electronic medical records in, in physician burnout and physician um, well-being? I think all of these are really very important questions, and um, places where that concept of, of flourishing may be important within medicine.
0: Mm. What has what surprised each of you most as, as you've done this work over the last few years?
1: One of the things that's been surprising for me is um, how that when um, other researchers have experienced this interdisciplinary approach to uh, well-being, how, how exciting they find it. Mm-hmm. We've um, hosted several interdisciplinary conferences, one on, on suffering, one on the measurement of well-being, um, one on religious communities, one on meaning of life. Um, and sometimes there's a little bit of initial skepticism. What, what am I, as a psychologist, say, going to speak about to a philosopher or a theologian? Um, people have been willing to participate, and when they come, they, um, they find it really exciting. So the uh, empirical researchers often find the rich conceptions that are available in philosophy and theology very helpful in their own work and mm-hmm. thinking. Um, and, and likewise, the, the philosophers we've had present um, have often found the, the <coughs> empirical data that's been presented very helpful in, in their own work. Um, and sometimes in in tension with uh, um, uh, reigning ideas within uh, philosophy. So I think uh, that exchange can be beneficial in both directions. And um, uh, I think often that skepticism has led to a real appreciation of the richness and importance of approaching these topics from a multidisciplinary perspective.
2: It's Just one example illustrating that, I think uh, I would have to agree with Tyler that personally seeing these disciplines coming together and informing one another has been one of the really cool things about being a part of this program. And the example I have in mind is regarding the, this question of the meaning of life. Philosophers, at least some philosophers, would tend to think that you know one of the components to having a really meaningful life would be uh, a constant sense of opportunity and variety. You know, Boredom in philosophy is one of the, the things that we really want to avoid. Um, but interestingly there's empirical research which shows uh that uh, rhythm and routine and regular schedule uh actually empirically increases people's uh rates of uh, meaning in life on these certain types of questions Uh, and so this is a place where uh empirical science is actually challenging what was sort of thought to be you know Purely something in the domain of philosophy, but that's where, um, you know, developing good measures that can try to get at this, uh, these different aspects of meaning, I think, is an important place where uh, philosophy can really come together with the empirical sciences.
0: Tyler, you 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 touched on it a few minutes ago, but I always like to kind of finish by asking people, what are kind of some of the big questions, the big unanswered questions that that you still have. Um, They're looking to answer, and the the ones that I I think make you most excited to continue doing this work.
1: Yeah, so, and I touched on this earlier, but I think one of the exciting research projects we're taking on right now, and I I don't know how it will play out, is to really come to a better understanding of what shapes a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And... The initial results that we, we have, I think, are quite quite interesting, which is that it's much more malleable in um, adolescence and in young adulthood uh, than it is later in life. Um, that Later in life, it's hard to change. It's much easier to change and increase people's levels of happiness and life satisfaction than it is their sense of meaning and purpose. Um, even something like... Uh, religious service attendance, which I had expected to profoundly uh, change uh, sense of meaning and purpose. It does in early adulthood, but its effects are much, much smaller uh, later in life. It has a much more profound effect on life satisfaction and happiness than it does on, on, um, on purpose. Uh, and the, sort of the one exception we found to this is is, is volunteering um, later in life, which which has larger effects on purpose than it does on, on, on happiness. And I think maybe an important means for people later in life to, to, to find that sense of purpose again and you know, I think this research is, is is relevant as our population ages and as, as people retire they're still looking for um, something to, 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 to fill that time to find that 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 purpose again and so trying to understand um, what these determinants are and how how to help people in this regard I think is, is very important and, and largely um, understudied, uh, so we're we're trying to do this now with uh, with meaning and purpose across a number of different um, uh, research studies, and we hope longer term to be able to do something similar with uh, with with different measures of character uh, as as well. And um, a- again, it's using those methodologic tools from from public health, from biomedical and social science research. Uh, to study these other really important things. And I, I think it's important work and I'm really excited to see how um, it develops and what we learn.
0: Thank you again to Tyler Vanderweel and Matthew Wilson for taking the time to talk to me about their research around human flourishing. As we mentioned at the beginning, you can find much more information about their work just by going to our website, hsph.me multimedia. That's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are a fan, we'd love it if you could take a few minutes to leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening.